This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. joining us for a Thursday edition. It's the Q&A or Q and Mary Langston podcast or uh, just the Mary Langston podcast. Whatever folks want to call it, I enjoy it. Makes me think, uh, which is a good thing. Um, questions are fantastic. They're relevant and they're thought-provoking. And uh, I need that because I spend a lot of my time by myself. And I, I'll tell you this, Mary Langston, I don't know if this has been your experience or not. It's very hard to ask yourself a question that you don't already know the answer to. I mean, I spent a lot of time talking to myself, as you know, because we've walked through airports together and you've seen that. But how can I ask myself a question if I don't know the answer to it? I mean, I'm limited, right? Aren't I? You're right. And I think I remember from one of your books that you're supposed to ask questions that you may know the answer to. I think I phrased that incorrectly, but it was some it was kind of centered towards that. No, you're exactly right. You you do not want a lot of surprises in the courtroom. You, one thing you don't ever <laughs> want to hear a prosecutor say is, oh, my gosh, I wasn't counting on that. <laughs> Are you sure? Wow. What a revelation. No, it, so that might be why. <laughs> No, I remember getting some very startling answers in court, but you cannot change your facial expression. Uh, You have to act like that is exactly what you were planning on getting, even though it wasn't even (laughs) close. But I don't I don't know. I mean, that's court. You have months to prepare. These questions usually are above my pay grade, but (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they're all sports this week. I guess we'll find out. We'll take a crack at it. All right, let's do it. Thank y'all for sending us your thoughts and your questions each week. We hope that y'all will keep sending them our way. Trey, they're more legal focused today, but we'll end a little bit differently. But we'll start with a question from Brad, who writes, putting aside that Willis seems to have lied, what's the relevance of evidence at the criminal trial that the prosecutor was dating one of her deputies? And how is that relevant to the question of whether the defendants are guilty? Well, Brad, that is exactly the right question to be asking. So there there are lots of like interesting sidebars, I guess. I mean, people are interested in salacious details. I'm actually not. I mean, if I want to watch like good salacious, you know, illicit love stories, I'm probably not going to be watching CNN or Fox or MSNBC. I'll pull up something on Netflix. So it's not that interesting to me, but it is riveting to a lot of other people. It's uh, not common in most DA offices, uh, but the whole fact pattern is really not not common. But but that's not what you ask. You ask, how is it relevant? 
What is the legal relevance? Uh, Fonnie Willis is a Democrat. Many of her defendants are not. That falls under the heading of being interesting. It is relevant in the broad sense, in the minds of, of many. But it, to me, it is not legally relevant. Um, and I can prove that from a recent matter I was involved with in just a minute, and I'll try to do that. The test in Georgia is whether or not there's an actual conflict. Is there an actual conflict with Fonnie Willis and or Nathan Wade standing to benefit, primarily we think of that monetarily, from this prosecution? Um, What would be evidence of that? A book deal could be evidence of that. Television deal, miniseries deal. Y'all, y'all will recall perhaps that the clerk of court in the Alex Murdoch case had a book deal. So she had a financial interest in it. That can be disqualifying. But that's the test in Georgia. It's not potential appearance of a conflict. It's an actual conflict. Another way to look at it is, is she somehow disqualified? Is she a fact witness? Because you can't be a fact witness and be the prosecutor. Is there some family connection with one of the parties or witnesses? If that's true, then chances are great you cannot be the prosecutor. The fact that a Democrat elected district attorney is going after a bunch of Republicans is not, I don't think, legally relevant. Nor would it be if the fact pattern were reversed and a GOP elected district attorney went after a bunch of Democrats. Is it not what we want in a justice system? Is it politicizing our justice system? 100%. Is it enough to show an actual conflict of interest? Probably not. So all of the stuff we saw, I mean, what I'm most interested in, honestly, is whether or not Fonnie Willis or Nathan Wade had conversations with the White House or the Democrat National Committee about going after Trump. That would be interesting, and that could be getting you somewhere towards an actual conflict, not a potential, not the appearance of impropriety. If Nathan Wade were being paid to pursue this, which he was, and the money was somehow laundered through him to her benefit, would that be enough? Probably. So public funds are going to him. No slight to Mr. Wade. I I think he has a pretty thin resume when it comes to prosecuting complicated criminal matters or really any criminal matter. Doesn't mean he's not a good litigator, but I don't think that's his background. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think it is. So you're paying a lot of money to somebody that doesn't have a ton of experience. You're dating that someone. Is that someone that you're paying with state funds to prosecute someone, Trump and others, taking you on exotic trips and footing the bill? I mean, that's why we heard all the testimony about reimbursements and cash and there are no receipts and You know, in certain cultures, you know, cash is kept in the house and other cultures wouldn't understand that. That whole line of testimony was about whether or not Nathan Wade was you know, somehow laundering money back to Fonnie Willis by paying for meals or trips. So this is how I know the politics alone is not relevant. I mean, you all have heard me discuss Jeff Fortenberry's case before. He was a friend. He was a colleague. 
Um, I'm intimately familiar with the facts of his criminal case, which he recently won on appeal. Um, Republican member of Congress, for those of you who are not familiar with Jeff, targeted by the FBI and a Democrat prosecutor in California, to the extent that's not redundant, uh, a Democrat federal prosecutor in California. And that prosecutor, um, in my judgment, had his own political reasons to prosecute Jeff. I mean, it would be a feather in his cap. He donated to Democrat causes. He was no fan of Republicans, me and Jeff included. Misled defense counsel about Jeff Fortenberry's status. The FBI agents lied about what they were talking to Jeff about. Not only were they not kicked off the case, the jury never heard a word about any of that. So, I mean, not, not only were they not conflicted out, like the defendants are trying to do with Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade here, the trial judge explicitly forbid it from being discussed. It, it wasn't even like remotely legally relevant in his mind's eye. So, again, Jeff won on appeal. The gist is this. Elected or appointed DAs are going to have to stay in place unless there is something glaring and overwhelming. That's the gist. Elected, appointed DAs stay in place unless there's something glaring or overwhelming. An actual conflict has to be shown that Fonnie Willis was enriched in some improper way by targeting these defendants. But I want you to think to New York, not Georgia, Alvin Bragg, Letitia James, politically benefit from prosecuting or suing the former president. You hear now Republicans promising to, quote, go after their Democrat opponents and rivals. That is not the purpose of our justice system. And when it begins to be wielded in that way, then it becomes like every other hack political system and institution that we have. And that will ultimately be our downfall. So who can fix it? Who can fix these conflicts that aren't really actual conflicts, but they're potential conflicts or something we're just not willing to settle for? We can stop voting for anyone in law enforcement who doesn't promise to be colorblind and politically blind. We should be the ones to kick off biased prosecutors. We don't have to wait on the judge. So I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, bull moose, Whig, Libertarian, don't care. You can save the politics for any other office that you want. Any office you want. But stop electing prosecutors on either side who say they're going to use that office to extract some political toll on their perceived political enemies. That will be the undoing of this republic. Well, well said, Trey. And thank you, Brad, for that question. I know a lot of viewers were thinking on that topic. So thank you for answering that, Trey. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. Our next question is from Luke in Georgia, who writes, Is there a concern that the emphasis on plea deals may create a disparity with those choosing trial facing harsher sentences and possibly compromising the principle of due process and equal treatment under the law. So what I hear Luke from the great state of Georgia asking is whether or not there is what we call a trial tax mm. that, that you're going to be punished for going to trial. And that is a legitimate question that Luke is asking. And it's one um, I, I think as a former prosecutor, I take it very seriously. I view it a little bit differently, but I understand where he's coming from. That's one way to look at it. 
that you're going to get a lengthier sentence because you go to trial and lose. The other way to look at it is that you are being rewarded for accepting responsibility and saving the state the trouble and the expense of a trial. So if you can get zero to 10 years for committing a crime and you go to trial and you get 10 years, but the prosecutor offered you three years if you plead guilty, is that a trial tax? Are you being punished? Because I mean, you, you got the statutory maximum. That's a lot. You would have gotten a third of that had you pled guilty. So in the federal system, we built in something called acceptance of responsibility, which is actually a good thing. When people say, look, I did it. I admit I did it. Usually, even like his parents, I hope my dad's listening to this podcast. I don't recall him doing this, but most parents will be more lenient on you if you accept responsibility. They don't want to be lied to. They don't want you to to deny doing something that everybody in the world knows you did. They will be, we're just wired to be more lenient if people show remorse, if people save, I mean, imagine this, Mary Langston. I mean, I hate to even use this fact pattern, but I'm, but it's but it happened. It happened quite often. So you have a child who's the victim of a sexual assault, and a defendant has two options: can go to trial and make that child testify, because there's no way you're not winning that case without the child. So you're going to make a six- or seven-year-old child testify. What's even worse than that is some defense attorneys would position themselves where the child had to look right at the adult that had hurt them during their testimony. So they would stand where the child had to look right at the stepfather, the uncle, the youth pastor, the the fill-in-the-blank. So you mean to tell me that a judge is not going to be tougher on someone who makes a child testify than that judge would be someone who comes to court and accepts responsibility and says, I'm not going to make you do that. I'm not going to make you sit there in front of 12 adults and talk about things that people don't even want to talk about in private. So the answer to Luke's question is, how do you see it? Do you see it as a tax, a punishment for going to trial? Or do you see it as a reward for accepting responsibility and sparing everyone the time, the trouble, the expense of a jury trial? So I'll close with this, Mary Langston. We had 12,000 warrants come into the district attorney's office when I was there. 12,000 warrants. Can you guess out of those 12,000 warrants how many we would be able to try in a year if we did Nothing but have jury trials. So everyone, we're going to try everyone. No plea bargaining, no plea deals, no plea negotiations. 12,000 warrants come in. How many trials do you think we could have in a year? Wow, I can't even imagine. That's so many. We could have 150 trials in one year. That's the time we were given for trials. Mm. Out of 12,000 warrants, you can try 150 of them. Which means, my math's not great, let's just say over 10,000 warrants would not be dealt with that year, which means they had to be carried over for another year, right? Mm-hmm. But you can't get to them that year either because you have another 12,000 warrants coming in that year, too. 
So you get behind. There's a backlog. And that's why prosecutors say, I tell you what, I'll give you a better deal if you plead guilty. Because not only do we want to incent people to accept responsibility, our system is not designed to try the number of cases that come into it. People who are facing 30 years in prison don't plead to 30 years. There's no incentive. You're going to go to trial. But they might plead to 18. They might save themselves a decade in prison, but they also save you the, ch the, ch the chance of losing that trial or making witnesses testify. I, I mean, it is an excruciating experience to make most average people testify, particularly victims, in a criminal case. It is excruciating. It is difficult for robbery victims, for God knows it's difficult for sexual assault victims. So we incent people, we reward them, if you will, for pleading guilty. And that is the way I view it. I don't view it as a tax or punishment for going to trial. I view it as a reward for accepting responsibility. Well, thank you so much, Trey, and thank you, Luke, for that question. We'll move on to our last question, and it's from Ralph in New Hampshire, who writes, what has happened to the Republican Party? He says, when I was a young man, Republicans were the party of ideas, international strength, governmental restraint, and at least some fiscal prudence. It seems to be quite different now, he says. So how did this transition occur? Yeah, and stupid me. I thought the first two questions were tough. <laughs> right, we'll end it with a tough one. I thought the question on the difference between potential and actual conflicts was tough. And then I thought the one on trial taxes was tough. Mm -hmm. And now Ralph from the great state of New Hampshire, which you and I just visited with my right. beautiful wife. The three of us were there. Weren't we there? We were, yes. Yeah. When you get old, you get forgetful. I think we were just there, weren't we? We were, and there was a lot of snow on the ground. Yeah, there was. What happened to the Republican Party? Um, I don't know, Ralph. I mean, I, I, you know, if you held a gun to my head and asked me what the Republican Party believes right now, it is so, first of all, I'm not sure I could answer the question. Second of all, it is very different, as you note, from what it used to be, which was conservatism. Conservatism, I can define. Populism is much more amorphous. And I'm not a populist, so I, I would not be the person to, you know, conservatism, a limited role for the federal government. So you start by looking at the Constitution and you say, OK, what is the federal government supposed to be doing? And then you have to contrast that with, OK, what's the state government supposed to? What are the obligations of the state government? And then what are the obligations of local government? And then what are the obligations of the family, the community, charity? So that's where I start. And that's where I think Republicans used to start, is that there's a very limited role for the federal government. We don't preach that anymore. Uh, for two reasons. Well, I say two reasons. I can't read other people's minds. I'm not sure people believe that anymore. So that would be one reason. But I, I can't read people's minds. What I can tell you is that's a difficult argument to make. We live in a culture where the federal government is almost the first place people look. 
whether it's retirement, whether it's help with funding education, we all look to the federal government. You know, when you and I were there together, Mary Langston, the media loved to get hung up on how many bills Congress had passed. Like that was the barometer of success for us was how many new laws could we come up with? If you're a limited government conservative, that is not your barometer of success. So the definition for me used to be a limited federal government. And here's two other important parts, because I don't want my progressive friends tuning out that excels at what it does. So when you decide that you are going to do something, when it is the appropriate exercise of federal power, that you do it so well, you get a score of excellent. So that's how I define it, Ralph, in the great state of New Hampshire. The Republican Party used to be about a limited federal government that excelled at what it did, and inspired confidence in the people along the way. And right now we are over three. I don't know what the limits are. I look at the things, the ideas, and it's not to say they're not good ideas. Look, it's a good idea to give your spouse a Valentine on Valentine's Day. That's a good idea. It'd be a terrible thing for Congress to legislate. That, 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 that's not government's business. So something can be a good idea, and it's not a good government idea. I remember right before the Georgia runoffs, there were Republicans that were kind of outbidding one another over how much money to give to people uh, because of COVID. And there are people who lost money during COVID. I mean, government said you can't open your restaurant. There are people who lost money. The conservative What used to be Republican way of looking at that is if government took something from you, you are to be compensated and made whole. If government did not take something from you, if you did not suffer a pecuniary loss, a monetary loss, then you're not entitled to anything. But that's not what I heard Republicans talking about. Republicans have become like the party of populist. What, What do the people want? Let's repeat it back to them and hope that our tribe is bigger than your tribe. That's what politics is now. What's much harder is to persuade people that there's a better way. That's harder. It requires effort. It requires a relationship. It requires more than just an X or Twitter account or an Instagram account. You have to know what you're talking about, and you have to present it in a persuasive way. So what happened to the Republican Party? If you held a gun to my head and said, you know, we used to be the party for, like, keeping communism in check. And, you know, I see prominent, I guess, Republicans, uh, and they sound like Vladimir Putin disciples. They sound like they really like the guy. It is it is the most amazing. I, I It's just Republicans used to police their own. You know, we didn't have to wait for the media or someone else to kick out a Republican who did not meet our expectations with his or her personal life. We did it on our own. Not anymore. I don't know what happened to that party, Ralph. I just, if you don't know what you believe, then, (laughs) I mean, you really ought to find another line of work. 
if you can't tell people this is what we stand for and why. And it just seems like right now in politics, the progressives are easy. Government should run everything. Conservatism is government should run those things that are delineated in the Constitution. And the rest goes to the state. And if it's not the state constitution, it goes to the individual. We used to preach personal responsibility, community responsibility, familial responsibility. We used to preach that, but we don't do it anymore. So I, I don't I don't know what happened. I don't know when it transitioned. I don't know when doctrinaire conservatism became like a joke. And everything now is populism. I, I don't. I don't know when that, when that occurred, uh, but it did. Well, well said, Trey. And those are all the questions that we have for today. Do you want to take a crack at those three, Mary Langston? Because I, I don't. Oh, I, I don't I, know. I think they asked the right person with you, especially I with think those. I was three. over three on those. I don't think so. I think that was great. It well, felt like we were in a college class teacher. or something. I wish you were my teacher when I was in school. <laughs> I, I think I would have made better than like the C's that I brought home. Well, C's are all right. At least that's what my dad used to tell me. He'd say, get your a C. Your dad told okay. you C's were all right? Yeah, he did. I know your dad may have said something a little different. Uh, my, my dad <laughs> said uh, C's mean you're grounded for the summer. <laughs> that's what he said. But yeah, I got the different. last laugh. I became a lawyer. That's true. What's the best way to punish a dad who's a doctor. You know what? Mm. I feel sorry for my dad now because he has no idea how to introduce, like when he's introducing me to his friends, you know he's not going to say, my son was a trial lawyer. You know he's not going to say that. He's he can't proud of say, you. you. My son was in Congress. So <laughs> I, I think what he says now is, my son co-hosts a podcast with a wonderful, beautiful soul by the name of Mary Langston Willis. I think that's what, <laughs> I think that's what he says now. No, actually, he well, just that would says, be fine, but he's very proud of you. No, he just says, this guy married my daughter-in-law. That's what he says. <laughs> he does love Terry. We know that. Like, oh, who doesn't? <laughs> that's what he says. Exactly. His claim to fame is, you see this beautiful, sweet, kind woman here? My son married her. That's his claim to fame. Oh, well, I know that that part's true, but I also know he's very proud of you. Uh, well... Uh, that'd probably be that'd probably be my mom. But um, <laughs> let's hope next week that I don't get any questions that require me to think about the difference between <laughs> actual and potential conflicts. Hopefully, instead of like, what does the Republican Party stand for? Maybe someone can ask me if infinity is a number or a concept. <laughs> that that might be easier. <laughs> or why do bad things happen to good people? Oh my. <laughs> Or who did Cain and Abel marry? So, hmm. Something easy, something much easier than what happened to the Republican Party. <laughs> mm -mm -mm. We'll see what happens next week. We All know right. we'll get you some thoughtful questions. And uh, I guess by the time we talk next, the South Carolina presidential primary will be over. And mm -hmm. um, who knows? I mean, maybe the maybe the whole thing will be over. I don't know. A lot can happen in a week, but. I hope I talk to you between now and then. If not, um, we'll see you next Thursday. And everybody have a great week. And thank you for listening to the Mary Langston podcast. The Trey Gowdy podcast. And thank y'all. We'll see you next Thursday. Bye-bye.
Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 